Hello, hello, and uh, we are glad to have you back in the Undertow for episode number 12 of the Undertow podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the crime and creator-owned comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Uh, Tonight we are diving into Killer Be Killed number 8, the latest issue in the ongoing Brubaker Phillips book from Image Comics. Um, as always, this is uh, Robert Watson here in Columbia, Missouri, and my co-host Bubba Beasley is on the other end of the line. Hey, Robert. Hey, everyone. As always, you can find our episodes at undertow.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes if you'd like to leave us a review or give us a listen through there. Um, we are on Twitter, tweeting occasionally at Undertow Podcast, um, or you can send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'd like to hear from some fans. We've gotten a couple reviews since our since our last episode on iTunes. We appreciate that. Love to hear feedback. I'm going to start things off, as always. I'm going to hand things over to Bubba. He will get you up to speed on all the news in the, the world of Brubaker and Phillips. I know we've had some Eisner nominations since our last episode. So uh, go ahead and take it away, Bubba. Yep, and that's the the only big uh, news item for uh, this episode is uh, the Eisner nominations. Um, the Eisners being uh, the most prestigious um, awards focusing on on comic books and graphic novels, uh, that sort of thing. And um, and the nominations for the uh, 2017 Eisner Awards came out just at the beginning of this month. And um, we have uh, basically five uh, nominations that that um, our listeners would, I think, be most interested in. Uh, Kill or Be Killed uh, was nominated for Best Continuing Series. The Criminal 10th Anniversary Special uh, was nominated for Best Single Issue or, uh, slash One Shot. Um, Ed Brubaker was nominated for Best Writer uh, for his work on these two, two books and on Velvet. Uh, Sean Phillips was nominated for Best Cover Artist for multiple covers for those two books. And then uh, Betty Brightweiser, Elizabeth Brightweiser, was nominated for Best Coloring for the uh, for for Criminal, for Killer Be Killed, for Velvet, and uh, by Kirkman and and as a as a book uh, Outcast. And um, yeah, uh, this isn't by by no means is this the first time that uh, that Brubaker Phillips that that their collaborative works have have received um, any recognition at the Eisners. Uh, by my count, um, this is this brings the total up to about 37 nominations just for the Eisners, just for Brubaker, Phillips, their collaborative works, and and related nominations like nominations for the the colorists when they happen to be doing uh, work either on on Criminal or or uh, uh, Fatale or the Fade Out that sort of thing, and. Um, this making 37 nominations. They've already won eight out of the the uh, prior 32, and these five uh, nominations and the other awards, these five awards and the the, the others will be announced on uh, Friday night, July 21st, uh, at Comic Con International in San Diego, which uh, which um, uh, sponsors the awards and and announce the nominees, uh, that sort of thing. And I think the the most interesting thing. Uh, about the Eisners is that literally every major co- collaboration between Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips have received their their own um, uh, Eisner nomination. And I'm going to post, hopefully before this uh, podcast is released, I should have up on uh, the on a criminal blog 
uh, at uh, criminalcomic.blogspot.com should have a, um, a, kind, a comprehensive list of the, the Eisner nominations and Eisner uh, wins. But yeah, Scene of the Crime was Best Limited Series nominee in 2000, Sleeper, Best Continuing Series nominee in 2004, you know, Criminal, Incognito, Fatal, The Fade Out, Killer Be Killed, now with these nominees, that we can now add Killer Be Killed to the list. Um, they haven't the these books haven't won um, most of the time. It's just, you know about a quarter of the time. Um, but Criminal won Best New Series in 2007, and then Criminal won again in 2012 for Best Limited Series for The Last of the Innocent, and then The Fade Out won for Best Limited Series in uh, 2016. And to be honest, I, I probably would put at least at the moment I would put Criminal and The Fade Out at the very top uh, of their works um, alongside Sleeper, which I think you know, has, was, was underrated when it came out. It wasn't on my radar when it first came out, but um, I still think I, I still have a special part place in my heart for Sleeper, but yeah, five additional nominations, one each for, for the two books for um, Killer Be Killed and the uh, criminal 10th anniversary one shot one each for, for each of the creators behind it. Not only Brubaker and Phillips, but Betty Brightweiser as well, uh, which which makes me happy because um, uh, Betty Brightweiser wasn't actually listed uh, along with Killer Be Killed for um, uh, for uh, best um, for uh, uh, best continuing series and wasn't wasn't mentioned in in the uh, criminal nomination for best single issue. So I'm glad to see she got her own her own recognition, and uh, yeah. Um, huge news, and it's it's. I think um, uh, I'm sure it's gratifying for for all three of them that they they continue to get recognition for for their work, even as, as they work in the same same genre of uh, of crime and noir. Each time with a with a different twist, they continue to get noticed. Yeah, and that's interesting. I don't know. I can't think of any other awards that that do that. How the the Eisners will take into account basically all of you know all of the different works that a creator might be putting out there like you mentioned best writer or best colorist in the case of Betty Brightweiser and lists the you know all of the different books that she's coloring you know you know if you think about you know the Grammys or the Oscars or the Emmys it's usually one specific work even for a director or an actor so that's kind of an interesting um which maybe like the SAG awards or something like that might take into account multiple works but uh but yeah, that's something fairly unique, I think, that the Eisners does. About uh, 10 years ago, Ed Brubaker almost had a three-peat. He won three out of four um, Best Writer Awards, 2007, 2008, and then again in 2010. And it was for multiple titles. It was for Captain America, Daredevil, and Criminal. And then in 08, Captain America, Criminal, Daredevil, Immortal, Iron Fist. And then I think the longest list was for 2010, Captain America, Daredevil, Marvel's Project, Criminal, and Incognito. So. so yeah, that seems like it's pretty much uh, up to speed on on the all the news. So like I said, it hasn't been that many weeks since our last episode. So um, I guess we'll go ahead and move into uh, the issue that we're going to focus on tonight, which is Killer Be Killed number eight. Um, again, we anticipate that you know probably in the next couple months. I haven't looked at the timeline, but there'll probably be an off month coming up relatively soon, and we will, uh, Bubba and I will dive into. Um, uh, some of the back catalog from Brubaker and Phillips. We haven't decided exactly on what book we're going to dive into. We did one on Scene of the Crime um, a few months ago, and that went really well. So 
again, yeah, maybe you know we could look into Sleeper or or another one of the books from the back catalog. So you can look forward to that, and then uh, of yep. course we will dive into Killer Be Killed as it comes out each month as well. And it does, and it does look like just going between solicitations and Brubaker's newsletters and everything, it does look like July will be the skip month. So, okay, um, cool. Yeah, issue nine will come out this month in May. Uh, Ten was solicited for a June release. Um, July is going to be the skip month, but uh, Killer Be Killed Volume Two, the trade paperback, will come out. It's scheduled for July 26, and then uh, issue 11 um, in its newsletter, Brubaker mentions that that it's um, the August issue, and uh, its cover is the first of a um, of, of a series of covers that will interlock into a, a single image. So. Oh, I did think of one other little piece of news, and. I really can't report on it yet because my comic shop was sold out, but I've got one on order, is the uh, Sex Criminals, I think it was number 17 that came out, that I guess was kind of in tribute to Brubaker and Phillips. And uh, If you want to call that of, a tribute, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tribute in quotation marks. But yeah, like I said, I haven't actually gotten my hands on that issue yet, um, but I have one on order, so that will be something that I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out what they did with that. Uh, that's a crazy, wacky book, so that'll be interesting to see how they uh, incorporated their homage to their friends, Brubaker and Phillips. Okay, well, we'll start things off with our uh, our, our normal spoiler alert. Obviously, we're going to dive into this issue, so you will definitely want to uh, check out Killer Be Killed number 8 before listening to the rest of the podcast, because we're going to start diving into uh, all the plot points. So, anyway, consider that your uh, spoiler warning. Um, the comic opens, we have Dylan at the at the newsstand. And uh, the headline is, Will Vigilante Strike Again? So this is the talk of the city, obviously. We've got cops everywhere. They're on the hunt for Dylan. And we've got the newsstand guy who's kind of railing on the NYPD. NYPD, And it's interesting. I noticed there are like two officers that are clearly visible behind him while he's railing against the NYPD to Dylan. But I guess they're they're probably just far enough out of earshot or he doesn't care, one or the other. Yeah. Um, but he tells, uh, yeah, he tells Dylan... Dylan kind of engages him about this topic, and uh, and the newsstand guy's kind of disgusted by the whole the whole thing. And he says, "Oh, we don't need another Bernie Getz." Um, and I looked up; I, I didn't know who Bernie Getz was, but I I did a little bit of research and um, read that he was a the subway vigilante, is what they called him, who shot four muggers on the subway in New York City in 1984. Yep. And I think he just got like a slap on the wrist or something like that. I don't think any of them died, but one of them had serious medical. Like maybe was paralyzed or something like that, um, and so that was kind of a, a controversial hot button issue at the time. Is this guy kind of you know kind of took the law into his own hands, and there was a mugging and and ended up shooting these guys. And, and so and, and, and he he was high profile enough. I mean, he was name checked in a Billy Joel song, and uh, we didn't start the fire. AIDS crack Bernie gets. Wow, that's blowing my mind now. Okay. Uh, it's been a long time since I heard we didn't start the fire and that, you know, there's so much packed into that song that obviously that one went over my head uh, when I heard it last. I think our social studies teacher in high school, like gave us printouts of the, or copies of the lyrics and went over what, what the references were. So that's funny that you should say that because now that you bring that up, I distinctly remember in about, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade and there was like a student teacher we we kind of had it. We had a social studies teacher as well, and she was older. And then there was like a student teacher, and uh, that was like his treat for the day was that he came in and kind of did some semi karaoke historical version of 
if we didn't start the fire as well. So that's funny that that was, um, that must have been a thing at, at some point in yeah. time in junior high. I'm pretty sure that's not happening in junior high now. But uh, and the funny thing is, is is as best as I can tell, Dylan is is young enough that he wasn't. It's not even something that was you know that passed him by in grade school or whatever. He wasn't born during the 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 whole brouhaha. So. But yeah, so the newsstand guy, like I said, is kind of disgusted by the whole situation, um, and and he expresses that hey, the vigilante should be going after politicians, CEOs, or NSA, instead of you know these these random criminals that he's that he's taking out. So he's kind of disgusted with the whole thing. Um, the police, like I said, are everywhere in NYC. So you know Dylan's struggling with with basically just getting from point A to point B. There's checkpoints set up, as he says, stop and frisk was back in a big way. Yeah, he's also trying to. He's also, I think, having difficulty keeping his attitude in check. Yeah, and I think that also his kind of his viewpoints at this point is supposed to probably say something about his age and maturity level. You know, he's kind of all over the map as far as you know. He at first he kind of thinks it's funny. You know that he says, "Hey, I'm you know wielding this much power that the whole the entire NYPD is scouring the city looking for me." But then at the same time, and then he gets really annoyed and is kind of bitter about the whole thing. So, you know what I mean? He's just kind of impulsively going back and forth between those two. Coming across more as a stupid kid than anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, we know his frame of mind is obviously out there, you know, based on what he's doing every issue. So, But he also mentions, he says, you know, the clock was ticking. I was the one with the demon to feed. So, of course, this is in the back of his mind the whole time that, hey, the days are running out. Um and he needs to uh, settle on his next victim, so that he's got that in the back of his mind the whole time. And, and the question of the ticking clock—that um, does make me wonder. Uh, and I think you know that <laughs> this book has been around, you know, issue eight. It's it's nine months, and it only now occurs to me: what exactly do they mean by a month? Like, do they mean yeah. like like on the fifth of every of every month? Uh, well, it's just two. like your, it's just, yeah, it's just like your utility bill, I guess. Or is it, or is it the lunar calendar? It just, yeah, the, the 25 days, it's like, and what if he, what if he's wrong? What if he's going by the, the, the calendar and it really is, you know, lunar? You know, it's, it's, that, that'll get, you know, out of whack real quick. So the comic, you know, that's where it opens at is, is, you know, this kind of new reality around the city with the cops on the hunt for Dylan. And he, and then we cut to back to Dylan and Daisy. And we see Daisy in Dylan's bedroom browsing through Dylan's dad's artwork, the uh, kind of the sci-fi comic porn that his dad, you know, that we know his dad worked on back in the day. And she, you know, she's looking at it artistically and saying, hey, you know, do you think we could possibly display this at, obviously she works at an art gallery. She mentions that, hey, I think I could get this displayed at our art gallery, which Dylan is reluctant to do. And then the there's an interesting exchange where, um, Dylan says, yeah, dad was a pretty dark guy sometimes. And then he proceeds to uh, lie to Daisy and says his dad died of a heart attack, which, of course, we know is not true. Earlier, it was revealed that um, his dad, in fact, committed suicide. And so that's interesting that he had a different response to her than he did to Kira, which is to tell her the truth. And we find out that he did that on the first night that they met. Yeah. And it, and it's kind of interesting, the, the whole question of notoriety is, you know, his dad wanted to be known as a serious artist. That that's what he wanted to to make his mark. How he wanted to make his mark in the world. And you know, Dylan's reluctant to 
to give him a higher profile for for what he he really became known for and what he really made made a living at. And in his own life, it's not clear that that he has any sort of or that he had any sort of ambition uh, before this this whole curse, you know, took a hold. But he's he's definitely becoming uh, literally notorious in his own in his own right as well. So. Yeah, I wonder if we'll get some kind of flashback more to his dad. Like, if that's going to be dove into a bit more. You know, I just wonder, you know, I would like to see more of that exchange or what was going on in his life. Or I wonder if it'll still all just be filtered through Dylan's narration. I don't know. And and the thing is still hanging there. I, I, I One thing that I may, thought made this issue all the more interesting was the unstated context um, of of all the previous issues, and and there there are three examples. Is that that this one number one is you know Dylan mentioning his dark father and and his dad's dark work, and he doesn't know, but we do as readers. You know from the very end of of uh, issue number four, that last almost cliffhanger page, we know he doesn't that his dad's artwork includes an image of the demon. And I noticed they do this, they do a, a cool thing um, as far as the art when, a lot of times it seems to happen when they're in Dylan's apartment, but um, there's that particular scene when Dylan is talking about his dad, he has his back to Daisy and his face is completely covered in shadow, which is a, it's like I said, it's a cool effect. Um, it just, it, it gives this kind of creepy feel and there's lots of shadows happening in the apartments and I noticed a lot on the, you know, like the walls behind Dylan, there'll be like a shadow that almost looks independent of Dylan. You know, it doesn't look just like his logical shadow from from lighting, you know, which in, in, in a lot of the demon scenes would be the demon materializing out of those shadows. So that's something the demon didn't show up in this issue. But um, a lot of those exchanges, the apartment is always, the, the lighting's always weird in there. And I, I feel like there's just kind of these these moving independent shadows that are floating around on the walls behind them. Um, that makes for a nice, nice effect. Oh, and that was the other thing that he mentioned. Um, we found out a little bit more about the, his dad's suicide. He says that uh, his dad shot himself after sending his mom to the pharmacy for his prescription. So once again, we get the medication factor in there. Um, another, yet another parallel to Dylan's current situation um, with his so-called prescription that he's getting from the drug dealer, which comes up later on and has come up, you know, throughout several issues. And there's a really the, the the most striking page I thought in the whole book was um, the page with his dad's artwork, and we get the text over to one side. It was just kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition with the dialogue about his dad's suicide next to the kind of the pulpy nude um, the devil woman artwork that they're that they're talking about earlier. And the image is you know they've done this effect that we've seen a couple of times where it's just kind of glowing and it jumps out at you. There's some kind of coloration, color scheme, saturation that's not there on the other pages. And it's, I thought that was probably the most striking page in the book. Yeah. That page struck out to me for, for a couple reasons. And, and I don't know, you know, Sean Phillips has a design, has a background in uh, art design. And I don't know if you, if, if he knows from issue to issue, okay, the, this comic's going to be 40 pages long, 42, whatever the, or 44, whatever the case may be. I know that a comic book will naturally open up to these particular pages. But 
I could not carry this comic book around to 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 read when I I, I picked it up over lunch, took it to work with me, and I could not carry it around because the page it would naturally open to was was this one. And <laughs> yeah, not safe for work. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's it's probably the most beautiful page in in the issue, and it's one of those those times where. Like in the the uh, Baz Luhrmann movie Moulin Rouge, uh, the the main character Christian is supposed to be such a great uh, writer and poet that that he just wows the world with his poetry, and and you know the the creators you know, and the the, the on the DVD, the bonus features, they make clear that that's a really hard thing to do is to communicate this guy is uh, he's he's a modern day Orpheus, where Orpheus was the poet that was such a great poet that the trees and rocks would follow him around. And, and what they ended up doing is as shorthand for that so that the audience would instantly recognize that that the main character Christian was this wonderful poet was they they kept grabbing songs from pop music. You know, uh, uh, the Beatles and Madonna and everything else would would come out of come out of its mouth, you know, very naturally and organically. And in this case, we're we're told that Dylan's dad was this um, graphic artist for weird sci-fi and weird fantasy with this this kind of pornographic um, tinge to it. And Sean, Sean Phillips is such a strong artist in his own right that he can create work that I think is pretty credible for the, the, the type of work that's being described for, for 1970s, 1980s, weird, weird sci-fi art. I could see this, you know, um, uh, the, this image of the, was it the, uh, what was it Daisy Calder, the, the devil lady. I, I can see this, you know, granted, um, in a in black plastic or a brown paper bag, that sort of thing. But I could see this on a cover of uh, of weird adult sci-fi or fantasy. Yeah. And there's an interesting uh, there's an interesting development in this comic right after that point. Um, it's revealed to the reader that thus far the comic has been taking place simultaneous to the events of last issue, uh, the issue from Kira's point of view, because this this scene with Dylan and Daisy ends. Or kind of segues into the two of them having sex in the bedroom, and Dylan has this kind of subconscious thing happen where he thinks that Kira may be in the room. He says he doesn't know if it's a smell or what it is, but something triggers in his brain that like, hey, is Kira somewhere close? And so that's at that point we realize, hey, so this has been happening simultaneously to what we saw happen last issue with Kira hiding in the closet and finding his pills. Yeah, and classic dramatic irony where the audience, or in this case the reader, knows a lot more than than uh, the individual character and i think that's that's the the second of uh three instances where um where where this issue is even stronger in context this issue is that moment is so much stronger because you know it's 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 an interesting moment of, you know revealing maybe dylan's psychology that sort of thing that he's thinking of kira while having se- sex with daisy you know, if you didn't know the, you know, Paul Harvey, how Paul Harvey put it, the rest of the story. But in this case, you do have the rest of the story. She is, she actually is in there, stuck in the closet, checking out uh, Dylan's prescription medication. So uh, Then we get the reappearance of Mason. We haven't seen him in, in, in a few issues, I don't think. But anyway, he is watching TV in the apartment. 
and uh, sees that the NYPD have arrested who they thought was the vigilante, but it turns out that it was just some teenager impersonating Dylan, basically, somebody else in a red ski mask. Um, you know, this has started a trend, obviously, because it's been such a big news story. And there was a that was another little cool artifact they did was it appeared like uh, Sean Phillips may have used an actual photograph or something of the suspect on the TV screen. So it kind of gave it a different look. We're looking at the image through a TV screen, but it's almost like he used a real photo and kind of incorporated it into his artwork. Yep. And I think this is the first time that that he's ever done something like this of vaguely photoshopped or 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 discolored um, uh, uh, photography, you know incorporated into uh, into the comic book so and then we have uh dylan realizing that his pills were gone so once again this harkens back to to last issue um we know that that kira took the pills because she is kind of investigating what exactly is going on with dylan and why are that why is this prescription here um so anyway dylan realizes that they are gone and tries to call rex his drug dealer on the phone to get more pills and kind of freaks out about it um and interestingly enough, he has to leave Rex a message, and he has his own unique customer number with Rex. So, once again, Rex is a very enterprising drug dealer and has this automated phone system set up that uh, Dylan can leave his customer number. Um, I thought that was funny. Very thought out. I mean, you know, if you if you wanted to, to uh, deal in the black market like this and protect your customers, you know, you have voicemails without um, without names, just numbers, so... I'm telling you, Rex is with it, you know, in the, he's got, he's got his act together. So yeah, Dylan, um, because of all of the, the attention he's getting is obviously starting to get paranoid. So he has been, we find out he's been using the library computers, you know, to do his research, what he calls his research to find his next victim. Um, and at this point he, we, we just, we figure out that he stumbled upon this character by the, this lobbyist by the name of Gideon Prince, uh, for his next victim that they gave him a nice, bourgeois sounding name yep um and uh so we we see that he stumbled upon this lobbyist and he is tracking him down and there's some really really strong artwork also the night shots in central park which inspired the cover that i like so much um they're all really really nice the color palette they use uh they're just a it's a good batch of shots but less less shadow in central in central park than in in dylan's apartment Oh yeah, yeah, way less, and it's Central Park at night too. So yeah, Dylan is tracking down this this Gideon Prince character, um, anticipating that he he's going to kill him, but because of the cops everywhere, he has to abandon his kill, um, and kind of gets found out by Gideon. So Gideon sees Dylan and realizes he's being followed, and uh, oddly enough, he looks in that frame. He looks very happy when he first turns around and sees. And sees Dylan, he just says, hey, and it kind of looks like he has a smile on his face, but then, of course, he, you know, kind of screams out that this guy's following him, and Dylan is forced to take off running. And he mentions that, uh, and in the narration, Dylan mentions that he only has two days left before time's up on the kill. So, you know, like he said earlier, the clock is ticking, at least in his mind, the clock is ticking that, you know, he has to, to do his part, or he's going to have repercussions from the demon. So then Rex finally does call him back uh, and sets up a meeting. And this is a great, great serialized cliffhanger. Um, the big reveal at the end of the issue is that the mobsters have tied up Rex and are using him to get to Dylan. And, I, and that's the, the third time I think the context of the rest of the series really pays off is I did not notice this the first time. But when the uh, the Russian cab driver 
in um, issue number uh, six when the Russian uh, cabbie uh, notices Dylan. What he notices is Dylan getting into Rex's van. So that's where the mobsters made the connection with Rex and figured out Device's plan to use him to get to Dylan. Apparently, yep. and and, it, and if you are, you know, if you're you're any sort of drug dealer worth your your salt, you're definitely want to stay under the radar in terms of law enforcement. But you have to be out there enough to attract uh, new new clientele. So. It probably wasn't too hard to track down a particular guy, even despite his unmarked uh, white van. And yeah, yeah, he's a drug dealer. It's he can be found. The immediate contrast from the next to last page to the last page is is, you know, Dylan's asking himself, "How am I supposed to find another target in just two days?" Strictly speaking, another target is about to find him. <laughs> So, yeah, you're right, and and he is at least in his mind, Dylan is off of his meds, his medication, um, which he obviously puts a lot of stock in the in the pills. Even if you know we did find out that they're not actually what he thinks they are or what he's telling people they are. Yep. Um, but in his mind, those that's a big deal to him. I mean, he's immediately sh- shaken up when uh when he realizes that those pills are gone. So, um, it'll be interesting to see where his frame, what his frame of mind is as he's. You know, the clock's ticking, he doesn't have his pills, and now the Russian mob is very, very close to finding him, and obviously they have a, you know, a bone to pick with him. Yeah, and I think this entire entire issue, it's not, not just about the clock is ticking, and I think that's the recurring motif. It's, it's almost that the, the noose is tightening, that he's a, a quarry. He's, you know, he's not just uh, the, the predator at this point, the hunter. He's now become the prey, and... Um, it's closing in and in in a couple of ways that he almost got caught by the cops um, the the Russian mobsters are that much closer they know they know him they know who he is it's just a matter of getting him now and um, the demon you know he has his deadline and then on top of everything else you know to make matters worse is uh, his personal life is beginning to crash in on it you know, is 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 what we know from from Kira's story. Her, you know, stumbling across his his, his counterfeit medication. That's beginning to, to have a real impact on uh, on his his life as well. So, yeah, I just feel like there's I feel like there's going to be an accidental death somewhere in the near future. You know, I just I I feel like that somebody is going to inadvertently get killed. Um, you know, someone along the lines of Daisy even, but, you know, and how will that play out? Will Dylan, will that, you know, take Dylan off the hook, so to speak, even if he didn't set out to kill somebody, you know what I mean? I feel like a Rex even, I feel like there's going to be an accidental death somehow play into this and how that, you know, so does the demon not, you know, with this bargain with the demon, is it anybody? Is anybody fair game? Uh, is it supposed to be? You know, somebody in quotes evil or a criminal. You know, I, I don't know how that'll play out, but I feel like that's maybe going to be happening in the near future. Yep. And I and I don't I don't think Rex has long for this world. Yeah, Bubba. What else did you have uh, uh, of note on this issue? Well, so um, I'd mentioned a couple of things. We we had mentioned a couple of things about the artwork, the 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 very well done, you know, 
devil lady with the whip, the, the digital photography and the uh, TV broadcast. The one other thing that I think is, is worth mentioning in the artwork, and this is uh, something I mentioned uh, to you offline before we started the recording, is the, the reuse of artwork. And I don't know why I keyed off on this, um, but if any of our listeners, if you have um, issue number six uh, with you, as well as issue number eight, you can see that two, at least two pieces of um, uh, two drawings of Daisy are essentially uh, uh, reused from that very next to last page in issue number six, where Daisy and Dylan are uh, walking down the street, and he his he. Um, gets uh, uh, um, stopped, you know, he notices the newspaper and gets stopped at the newsstand. You see two close-up images uh, of Daisy, one smiling and one um, with her pursed lips and, and kind of this kind of mock angry um, stare at Dylan. Both of those images are really used in the first two pages where um, where Daisy appears, it, you know, uh, um, in the first scene in Dylan's apartment, you know, immediately after the montage of, of police officers, um, both of them are used one page after the other. Both of them uh, uh, flipped, so they're reversed, but they are, I think, very, very clearly um, the same basic drawing. You know, definitely recolored, probably re-inked. But it's it's the same facial expression, and I don't know why exactly I keyed off on those those facial expressions, but um, yeah, Robert and I were discussing possible reasons why that maybe it was you know a, a limited set of uh, his idea, you know, uh, maybe a limited set of of reference photos for this one character that uh, Sean Phillips happened to reuse. Another possibility I I consider is that. There's so much detailed work, you know, with the scenes with the uh, the police officers, you know, in, uh, on the uh, city streets, with the scenes in in Central Park, that maybe you know some little bit of of cutting corners was necessary, and you know this certainly isn't the first time that that images have been been reused by the the same pic by the same artist in terms of of reference work, you know, the, the images with Spider-Man where it's half his face. Is the mask, and the other half is his is his face. I think is is something that it's not only an idea, but I think the actual drawing ha has appeared in more than one one comic book by by Lee and Ditko, for instance. Um, but you know, maybe it's it's you know efficiency reasons. Maybe it's it's photo references. But I'm wondering if it's if it's a deliberate choice to reuse the same facial expressions, um, particularly in contrast to say to to Dylan, the main character, to to Kira. You know, we saw an issue last last month where there were a lot of close-ups between Kira and her her counselor or therapist, and each one of those close-ups had a had a very different facial expression, but it was also clearly the same individual. Um, you know, we do know from the writing that that Dylan is dis is more distant with uh, with Daisy than than he is with Kira. That he lies about about his dad and that sort of thing. Uh, we we know from from the rest of the artwork that that 
we physically don't see as much as Daisy of Daisy as we do of Kira. And maybe the repeated facial expressions is a deliberate choice to basically um, to emphasize the the unreality, you know, the the superficiality of the relationship that Dylan has with her. Uh, we were discussing this um, off the air, but there's a fan letter in the back matter, as there often is with the um, with Ed's column. And uh, the the fan who wrote in calls Dylan an unreliable narrator, which Ed kind of immediately backed away from and said, well, I don't necessarily think of him as an unreliable narrator. And uh, I just thought that was an interesting, an interesting use of that phrase just because uh, both Bubba and I have used that multiple times on the podcast. So I don't know if, uh, if that played any kind of part in the fan writing the letter calling him an unreliable narrator. But anyway, it was an interesting choice of words because I think that's pretty much how we've phrased it on, on most episodes of the podcast. So I would like to take some small credit for that. Yeah. And, but, uh, and Dylan, I mean, you know, he, 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 he's, he has suicidal tendencies. His family has a history of, of suicide and other psychological issues. He's, he believes he's on, uh, um, psychotropic medicine. Um, and you know, he's listening to a demon Who's telling him he has to kill once a month? I I don't know where where other readers are getting the idea that he might be an unreliable narrator, but at least it, it does seem to be our our conclusion. So, yeah, I mean Ed, yeah Ed pretty much addressed it right up front and said, "I'm not sure I'm willing to call Dylan an unreliable narrator at this point." So anyway, that was interesting. I was I was very interested to read his response to that just because that's. Um, something that we've talked about often on the podcast, and obviously we haven't talked, you know, had any feedback from from Ed Brubaker on that. So anyway, that was a cool little um, nugget in the in the back matter, which you know, the honestly, I look forward to to Ed's column as much as the comic itself. I, I enjoy that 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 part of the the monthly issues very much. So it's definitely worth picking up the monthly books to get the the back matter. Yep. Well, while we're on the topic of comics, I'm going to segue into the uh, recommendation section. I think I'm going to recommend a comic, uh, a monthly comic, and Bubba's going to recommend a film. So I'm going to, I guess I'll start things off here. And I was hesitant to recommend this book just because it's only two issues in, but um, the first two issues have been really, really strong, particularly the first issue, which is kind of an oversized issue. But that book is uh, Royal City, which is the new ongoing series from Jeff Lemire. And he's, uh, it's from Image Comics. He's kind of in full cartoonist mode for this one. It's a one-man show. He's created, written, and illustrating this book. Um, and it definitely harkens back to Essex County, which was one of his first works that, that I recommended on an earlier episode of the podcast. There's no real genre elements. It's just uh, so-called normal people kind of doing normal things which he mentions in the in the back matter. He mentions that he doesn't want people calling this just a slice-of-life book, um, which I think he's right. I mean, like I said, it doesn't have a specific genre, and it feels just like normal people, but there's this kind of mysterious current running beneath it. And uh, like I said, it's too early to really tell what direction it's going in, but um, nobody is better than, than Jeff Lemire at taking kind of the mundane and giving it this mysterious, intriguing twist. So, you, you know, the first, the first page on the book behind the credits is this really nice shot of an industrial, kind of semi-old-fashioned, but quaint city landscape. So you see factory smokestacks spewing smoke. There's a church, a few storefronts, some sporadic cars. And uh, I was intrigued from that first page. But uh, 
we find out it's the the setting is Royal City, which is the population is about forty five thousand people. Um, the book kind of deals with urbanization and the small towns that are kind of left behind in its wake and the decline of manufacturing. And then, like I said, there's some hints at some subtle supernatural elements that are happening that have that have yet to be explained in the you know the first two issues. But but Lemire is just you know he's quickly rising in my ranks of current comic creators to the point that I think I could probably safely put him at number two behind behind Brubaker and Phillips. Uh, Sweet Tooth was probably the first Lemire book that hooked me, but. Honestly, his artwork didn't jump out at me with that book. It was the it was the plot and the writing that that hooked me. But as I've evolved, I've grown to just love his artwork and really feel like it's it's just got a completely unique look. I I kind of compare him to how Stanley Kubrick, what how he worked in film, where he can present these seemingly mundane scenes of everyday life, but there's just this undercurrent that's constantly running through there of just something kind of melancholy or mysterious. And you can't really put your finger on what it is, but just something just feels slightly off, even just in normal conversation. So he's got a, he can do that really, really well. And it's just a you know the combination of his art, um, which a lot of it's painted, his art, his writing, and it's kind of refreshing too. He really uh, to not have a simplistic, one-dimensional approach to so-called rural characters. He's got a you know they're they're just developed really, really smartly. Um, and like I said, this book, it's only two issues in, so it's hard to know where it's headed, but I definitely think it's worth checking out based on the, the strength of the first two issues. Um, there's some good stream-of-consciousness dream sequences, kind of similar to what he did in uh, The Underwater Welder, which came out a few years ago. It's another great book of his. And then just kind of a nice touch uh, that I loved was that he has, once again in the back matter, which I like so much, he has a unique mixtape which is a Spotify playlist at the end of each issue that features kind of the music that he was listening to when he drew it. So that's kind of a cool effect. You can you can dial those up on Spotify. You can hear what he was into or listening to while he did it. It just gives it a nice kind of a, you know, it's a perfect perfect soundtrack to reading the book, I think. So I like those little touches like that. And there's a lot, a lot of really good music on there too, so that's just an added bonus. So yeah, I think that's a definitely a book worth checking out if uh, a contemporary image book, Royal City, in its very early stages. I don't know how long um, the book will run. I'm sure that that's a you know a large workload for him since he's doing everything himself. But he acted like that he was working on it for several years, and that you know basically Image has given him given him the freedom to kind of get a bunch of that work done up front before it was released, before it was announced. So. Uh, so yeah, I hope it goes a good long time because it's the first two issues have been very strong. Well, this uh, month I'm recommending a film. Uh, it's called The Limey, which is a slang term for for an Englishman. Um, I think I think you know that entomology goes back to um, British sailors who would eat citrus to avoid uh, scurvy. But uh, The Limey uh, from 1999, not a very big uh, film uh, when it came out. Um, I ended up uh, watching it a couple years later, I believe, with my then girlfriend, now wife, just as a random rental, and it had been on on my mind, you know, off and on. Saw that it was inexpensive uh, through Amazon and got the uh, the DVD and uh, watched it this past weekend. And yeah, it was, it was actually better than I remembered. And I think you know, age and frame of mind helps, but it's. Um, uh, one that 
that I'm glad it stuck around in the back of my head and and one that I definitely would recommend to uh, listeners of the blog. So very briefly, um, it's uh, from 1999, uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh, uh, in between uh, Out of Sight in 1998 and Aaron Brockovich and Traffic, uh, both in 2000. And Soderbergh has since gone on to do the the Oceans 11, 12, and 13, the trilogy, and, and Magic Mike. This was a much smaller film in comparison. Um, and written by Lim Dobbs, who uh, was one of the co-writers for Dark City, which was a, a previous recommendation. Uh, also a co-writer for The Score, a Robert De Niro uh, heist flick from uh, 2001, which not the best best De Niro film in the world, but you know a good, a good solid you know middle of the road uh, heist movie on hit, uh, for for him. Um, and this movie it stars uh, Terrence Stamp, who. I think most people my age uh, remember most as uh, General Zod from the original Superman movies, from you know the brief prologue scenes in Superman One and 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 the you know the kneel before Zod scenes in Superman Two. Um, Ninety nine was ended up being a pretty big year for Terrence Stamp. He he had that that really small cameo as uh, or minor role as uh, Chancellor Valorum in the first Star Wars prequel in uh, The Phantom Menace, and I. One of those cases where he was grossly underused, and that's probably a one of the most the legitimate complaints about the uh, the prequels is George Lucas underusing and misusing uh, actors who who otherwise do stellar work. You know, Natalie Portman, Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, that sort of thing. But um, he he had that cameo in episode one in 1999. Uh, he had a, a key role in uh, Bowfinger, one of my all-time favorite comedies, where he he plays the head of a um, basically a cult called Mindhead in in Los Angeles, you know, in in the middle of Hollywood, and he's basically the leader of a parody of uh, Scientology. And here um, he it's again set. In, in L.A., in the, the, the milieu of Hollywood, in this case the music industry, much more so than, than the movie business, um, and he's coming in as an outsider, and you know, he's starting alongside uh, Peter Fonda as basically an aging hippie uh, music producer or promoter. Uh, Leslie Ann Warren, Louis Guzman, Barry Newman, and yeah, the, the back cover blurb is this. And it doesn't do justice to to what the movie actually is. Is um, is British ex-con Wilson arrives in Los Angeles to investigate the mystery of his daughter's quote accidental death. His prime suspect, the wealthy, heavily guarded music promoter Terry Valentine, is no easy target. Propelled into an increasingly brutal search for truth, Wilson, with single-mindedness and terrifying precision, moves unstoppably toward revenge. And and the promotions for this movie, what little there was, you know, kind of did emphasize that um, action action uh, genre, the the revenge thriller aspect of of the movie. You know, the trailers had had uh, the Who's uh, the Seeker, um, not going to get what I what I'm after till the day I die, um, a, a '60s song late 60s early 70s song that referenced you know the beatles and the bobby dylan and perfect perfect music and and we hear that music you know at the very beginning 
Wilson showing up at LAX, getting into a taxi, that sort of thing, and there's real drive to it. And, and there are there are a couple scenes of of um, some violence, usually at a remove. I think most most famously is is uh, Wilson has just been beaten up by by a, a couple of local thugs left out in the street, and he he calmly gets up, walks back into the building, pulling out a gun that he that he had um, in the uh, the back of his uh, of his jeans. Walking it, walking back into the building, you hear a few shots, um, and then one guy running out, and Wilson comes comes out and you know just yells, "Tell him I'm coming! Tell him I'm effing coming!" and and just almost spitting it out toward the camera, and I, that's how the movie was promoted, and it is that, but it suddenly shifts gears quite a bit, you know, at the very very beginning of the movie, as soon as Basically, as soon as this character gets into the rundown motel, obviously near the airport, he's unpacked. He's he sits on the bed and unfolds the newspaper clipping about his daughter's death. At that moment, it it be, it switches from this external view of this driven, vengeful, almost force of nature predator, and and goes to this internal view where the music becomes very. Um, atmospheric and syncopated and you see a lot of flashbacks, you see memories and it, it really becomes much more thoughtful and, and almost impressionistic. You know, there are, um, there are flashbacks to his life where, and I don't think I've ever seen this done for any other movie where Soderbergh took uh, clips from a 1967 film, uh, poor cow a uh, crime thriller crime movie where uh, or a, a drama re- really where um where where Terrence Stamp plays a con you know in a relationship gets sent up the river but a completely different character not the same guy but he repurposes and recontextualizes that old footage from 30 years prior as basically flashbacks of his early life. And so you have flashbacks there. You have a nonlinear presentation of what's going on here in the present day. You know, there's definitely forward momentum in terms of him hunting down one target to the next. But conversations flash forward from, uh, uh, from one scene to another, filling in the gaps that, that you need to know but not not in a linear sequence and you even see a couple of times where the actor who's talking his dialogue occurs over a take where where he's not talking where he's just you know staring at the other person or lost in thought and it really is quite effective in terms of of connecting you to to the person behind this this vendetta and um, the the overall effect is that we we feel Wilson's grief and regret much more than his rage, and he's not only there in L.A. to to avenge um, his daughter's you know quote unquote accidental death, but also to find out what really happened. And the plot, you know, it's a ninety minute movie, very very impressionistically presented, so you know fairly. Uh, bare bones plot, and and from what I've read uh, since then, I've I've read a couple essays online. It se- seems like the writer was kind of annoyed about how much backstory was 
uh, and and uh, side character backstory was removed just to focus on this this one character and his memories and what he 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 knows about about his relationship his his almost estranged relationship with his daughter and what he finds out when he gets in LA um it's it's enough to to comp- to comprise you know maybe a novella maybe even just a short story but it's so effectively presented that I that I do strongly recommend it and what it reminds me of is um, the more recent movie and the much more high-profile, successful movie, the the Gray with Liam Neeson, where in that case it was this more of a survivalist adventure story, and this and, and the Limey is much more, you know, a revenge crime thriller. In both cases, you have the external person acting with competence and single-mindedness and authority, and and. Um, with with a little bit of of well more than a little bit of uh, of callousness the you know the cold calculating um, machine but in both cases you see the person behind it you see the 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 grief and in the case of Liam Neeson's character the despair and in the case of uh, of Terrence Stamp's character Wilson you see his uh, his bereavement and his not only his grief over losing his daughter but his regret over not not having his daughter in terms of the relationship that he should have had that he'd been sent up the river you know i think two or three times and wasn't the father that he that he could have been and really should have been and because it it makes such great use of of film of the uh, language of film the way that that Brubaker and Phillips use the language of comics to to let you inside the internal world of of a pretty bad guy pretty uh, uh, um, violent dude I I think it's definitely worth recommending and it's you know Wilson just like um, Liam Neeson's character in the gray he's not as articulate as some of the characters in uh, in the Brubaker comics, um, you but you you understand the person, you know not just because of his actions and the the terse dialogue with friends and and enemies alike, but you understand him because you 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 see his memories. You can even even feel his experiences and not just watch them. So it's the Limey from 1999, uh, starring uh, the great Terrence Stamp. And uh, directed by uh, Steven Soderbergh. It might become. I'm not a big uh, Soderbergh follower, but you know this this movie lingers in the memory of my memory as much as say The Gray does. Um, it <laughs> this may become my favorite movie of his. So. And uh, I was going to read real quick before we wrap things up. Like I said, we have gotten a, f- a few iTunes reviews have been rolling in, so I wanted to uh, read the latest one from. Uh, lend me flight it was very kind of him or her to uh, leave us a review it says this is the best a comic podcast can be if you love brubaker you need to subscribe to this the only complaint is it's too long between episodes keep going guys so uh yeah thank you very much we appreciate that um and we will definitely try to keep going and uh i think we will wrap things up for this evening and uh we will be back in a month or so to dive into the next issue of killer be killed and um Uh, Again, my name is Robert Watson. Uh, My more qualified co-host is Bubba Beasley. 
You can find our episodes, undertow.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes at Undertow Podcast on Twitter, or you can send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks a bunch, Bubba. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And we will see you guys on down the road. Thanks. So that's a long Bye.